This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 135 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. If you are of a certain age, an age where you may have spent a good bit of your time online using MySpace, you may recall an incident with the Sammy Worm, which in 2005 spread through MySpace so quickly and uncontrollably that they had to temporarily shut the service down to regain control. It was, by all accounts, a prank that got out of hand, but the authorities were not amused, and Sammy Kamkar, who wrote the worm, was eventually sentenced to probation, community service, and a hefty fine. Since then, Sammy Kamkar has set his sights on security research with a specific focus on open-source software. I caught up with Sammy at Recorded Future's R-Fun Predict 2019 conference in Washington, D.C., where he was delivering one of the keynote presentations. Stay with us. It started really early on. I was 9 or 10, and um, my mom got me a computer, and uh, initially I jumped on, and we got the internet. We dialed up onto her uh, onto her school's network, and as soon as I joined uh, a chat room on IRC, someone someone told me to get out, and uh, I said no. And <laughs> a few seconds later, my computer crashed. I got a blue screen of death, and I thought immediately that was the coolest thing ever, and wanted to learn how to do that. Like, how can I how can I do that? How can I um, understand how that works? How can I stop that? How can I create it? So I immediately got fascinated with the ability to really manipulate a system that I had little information on. Uh, I thought that was just super interesting, uh, especially because it was a real-world system. Like something someone actually affected me or could have affected and really done some impact. And that just seemed uh, really intoxicating. And so where did it go from there? How, how did those explorations proceed? Uh, I sort of started learning about denial of service tools, and I didn't care about denial of service so much. That doesn't seem interesting to me, um, but really manipulation of a machine. I think manip- being able to access data or just doing something like opening someone's CD-ROM just seemed like a lot of fun. <laughs> how can I do that across the Internet uh, on someone who's not expecting? Uh, so that's when I sort of started to realize, oh, I need to learn how to program. Um, I need to learn how to reverse engineer and uh, understand mem- memory manipulation and packet sniffing. And um, so really got into reverse engineering at that point. And that also, I also played as a teenager and played a lot of video games. Mm-hmm. So it fed into that a lot as well. So I was playing multiplayer video games, first-person shooters, and I was trying to see, can I use reverse engineering skills in order to give myself unfair advantage in right. video games? And then I started writing cheat software. So I was writing cheat cheat apps for Counter-Strike and other games to really just give me like super unfair advantage. But I'd make those open source because I think programming also became really fun to me as well. You know, in the beginning, it was a means to an end, but it was also just a, uh, it was fun to do. Well, and when you look back on it, what was sort of setting your moral compass, your limits on what you would and, and would not do? As a teenager, I think most of us probably look back and think, we were probably had a little more moral flexibility than we do as adults. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I don't know where it came from, but I definitely had some feeling in general of I wouldn't necessarily want someone to do something to me that or I wouldn't want to do something to somebody that I wouldn't want done to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
uh, I may have been a, a little more flexible back then where I'm like, well, other people can write cheat software too. So <laughs> where now I might not release cheats like game cheat software. I don't think that's the, the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, I always definitely felt a sort of a maybe a reciprocity or uh, some sort of, yeah, I guess reciprocal or quid pro quo type feeling. And that I think has often always pretty much guided me into not going too down on a dark, dark side. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think um, it's fair to say you, you first gained public attention due to the Sammy Worm. Um, take us through where, where did the idea for that come from and how did that play out? Yeah, so this was uh, 2005. It was the height of MySpace. So MySpace was the number one site on the internet at the time. And I was 19 years old and was just playing around on MySpace. I mean, sort of uh, my friends all had MySpace, so I thought I'd make an account. And I just wanted to see what could I do to my account that would just make it a little more interesting than other people's. And that's when I started playing around and seeing, okay, is there a way that I can execute code? Can I at least execute JavaScript code on my profile? And MySpace and the browsers would block that um, until I found some ways to escape that. And once I was escaping it and uh, had to get through some other roadblocks, uh, then I found, okay, well, what can I do with this JavaScript? What, what can I make it do? Um, maybe I could make it add someone as a friend. So if they visit my profile, they add me as a friend. Maybe I could make it update their profile. So then I would modify, if you visit my profile, I'd modify your profile. And it would append, but most of all, Sammy is my hero to your profile. I just thought these were funny things, like a, just a prank. Right. Um, and I just wanted to show off to a couple friends. But it never really spread. So I thought, okay, I never hit more than one or two people. Um, I had a new profile and didn't know many people on there. So that how do I make this spread a little faster? I thought, okay, I can make you add me as a friend and add me as a hero. Couldn't I just copy the code to your profile? So if someone visited your profile, they would add me as a friend, add me as a hero. And I tried that and I launched it one night and thought I would wake up with 10 new friends. And uh, I woke up with 10,000 new friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. it was a very big oops moment. Unfortunately, I have, I have several oops. Yeah, yeah, it's a recurring feeling in my life of like, uh, my heart just sinks in my stomach. I'm like, I'm an idiot. Was that the feeling you had, though? I mean, did you have that sort of, you know, that warmth flush over you? Like, oh, oh. Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah, no, no. I'm, of course. It was sort of like a, it was kind of like an of course moment, but maybe not. I just had no idea it would proliferate so quickly. Like, mm -hmm. I... I knew it, would, it was technically a worm, but I just I just had no idea of maybe the magnitude of MySpace at the time either. I didn't know it was the number one site. It was just something a couple of my friends used. It was a social network. It was uh, not really something important to me. At its core, it seems like it was really a prank. You weren't out oh, stealing absolutely. credit cards or, or you know, destroying profiles or anything like that. Um, but um, I suppose MySpace and then later on law enforcement were not so amused. So... Uh, yeah, but within a day, it reached over a million people were in, were infected. Uh, ultimately, MySpace had to shut down in order to remove the worm. Um, I later heard from someone, some people who work there that apparently they were deleting it from the database, but it was spreading faster than, the, than it could be deleted from the, others, from the database side. So they had to shut down, remove it entirely, uh, and, only then come, and only then bring it back, back up. And yeah, it was six months later that I got a visit from the Secret Service and LADA, uh, actually somewhat recorded future, <laughs> Levi, who's <laughs> um, actually a great guy. Uh, yeah, he, was actually, yeah. he was actually super friendly the entire time. I actually enjoyed talking to him. He was the one person I actually enjoyed talking to back then, uh, even during that event. 
Well, I mean, bring us up to date then. I mean, what has happened in the interim? Um, you, you've had many projects you've been in, been involved with, and uh, what are you up to these days? Um, yeah, it's a started a uh, physical access control company called OpenPath. I've released a lot of exploits in physical access control. Um, so the ability to copy, clone, simulate cards, RFID cards that we use to get into buildings. Um, I've demonstrated attacks uh, on RFID as well for automobiles, how to unlock a vehicle and start the ignition wirelessly, and then be able to drive it away, someone else's vehicle. Um, and all of those are due to insecurities and basically RFID technology. Uh, so this company is primarily a, a way to create a, a very secure way of getting into, into buildings just using your phone rather than using cards. And around that, I continue to do research because I'm, I'm trying to understand, well, what are the other modern, uh, let's say, access control methodologies, whether it's for vehicles, whether it's for um, businesses or buildings, or whether it's just devices, right, our phones and laptops. And I'm really just curious, how do they work and how can we exploit them? What are what are the things that we haven't figured out yet, or what are new attacks that are coming on the horizon? Just simply because devices, hardware, uh, tools to investigate things are get, becoming more and more inexpensive. Where five or ten years ago, a tool that an oscilloscope would have been thousands of dollars, where now it's hundreds of dollars, or a powerful computer would have been. Uh, hundreds of dollars where now you buy a Raspberry Pi for $35. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just the the low cost of everything has also made things really interesting. And it also it allows people to employ sophisticated attacks much more easily. Where do you think things stand today when it comes to responsible disclosure? When, when you When you discover some sort of vulnerability and you go to a manufacturer... Do they greet you with open arms? Do they ignore you? What, what typically happens? You know, that's it, it, interesting. I think um, if I'm maybe finding a vulnerability that's specific to a manufacturer, uh, yeah, I'll go to the typically go to the manufacturer and let them know. Some are open, some are not. But I'm I'm personally typically not looking for vulnerabilities in a manufacturer. I'm trying to find vulnerabilities in a protocol, something that we all widely agree. This is just the way things are. Um, maybe that's the, the way our TCPIP stack works. There's no manufacturer of the TCPIP stack. It's just Microsoft, Apple, everyone who has an operating system, um, Linux, they've all implemented things based off an RFC. And that's that's just sort of the code. That's, the, that's what we build our things off of. So I'm more interested in finding attacks in those because no one has done anything wrong. Uh, it's really a harder, I think, to me, it's just a lot more interesting because, A, it's a lot more difficult to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, why that's more interesting, I don't know. It just is. Uh, I think it, I, th- I find it a lot, a lot of fun when you can find something and you, and you say, oh, well, there's not really a good solution to this. There's no one to think, like point blame, right? The technology is difficult. Security is extremely difficult. And it's a lot more fun when you can find something in, the, in that base layer and that fundamental maybe law that we all thought would be a, a good implementation. Um, how can we just exploit that in a, in a way that just breaks it entirely? I think that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. What is your process when you set your sights on something, when you're looking to, to go through, dig in and explore something? How do you set at that? That's a question I get a lot. And I think what's interesting is that I'm not trying to break something. All I'm trying to do is understand how things work. That's, that's how I spend my time. I, I don't necessarily try to find a vulnerability. I'm not saying I'm going to look at a car. I'm going to look at how our key fob communicates with the car. I'm just saying I have a car or my friend has a car. And actually, my friend has a car that got broken into. And that got me interested in, like, how do cars work? 
How does the key unlock? How does it unlock when you go up to the car and you just pull the handle and it just opens without you doing anything? How does that work? Um, then I saw, oh, there's some wireless communication. Well, if there's wireless communication, what's limiting me from being only two meters away? Why can't I be 10 meters away? It's like, oh, it looks at the signal strength. Well, how can I amplify that signal strength? Can I just build a transceiver and that amplifies it? Oh, yes, I can. So now I can be miles away. Okay, interesting. Um, so it's, right. <laughs> it's really just learning how something works and then just poking at it, right? Prodding it at how, how things work. And that's when you start to find sort of the issues and when things break down. But, do, I mean, do you have any insights? Or, 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 or are you, in your introspective moments, do you wonder why is it when you have, when you're looking at things that many other people have looked at, how are you coming at it from a different uh, point of view? Is, is it a different type of creativity that you have to imagine things in, in a different way than perhaps other people have? Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily know how other people think, but I do know I didn't uh, maybe have the same path as other people. So I dropped out of high school. I didn't actually go to any, any school after that. So I think uh, uh, my lack of knowledge has maybe made me learn things a different way. Um, so simply, it's, it's just a different way of looking at it. Not that there's no right or wrong way of looking at things. Um, but I think maybe a lot of people learn with the same techniques. They learn with maybe the same base layer of knowledge uh, if you go through school in, in any subject or area where I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm really just picking and prodding at things. And so I don't maybe learn the fundamental rules or things that are instilled early on. So I have to learn those myself. But I think there are a lot of assumptions in those things that we learn. So if I don't have those assumptions to begin with, then I have to figure this stuff out myself and then looking at other areas that I just don't understand that other people do. So I don't know. I pick and prod at those more. How nice to have the uh, have the ability to do that, to have the time, to have the resources, to be able to explore those things that you find interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super fortunate. Uh, however, I would definitely you know, like to share that anyone can. Um, I was a kid just learning stuff on, on my free time, and anyone has the resources available, and we have more resources available today than we did a long time ago. So anyone can go online and just start reading stuff. Even if you're not going to school, there's open source textbooks now just for all sorts of subjects. Um, one, uh, I think it's Rice University created something called OpenStax. We can just download a chemistry textbook, right, entirely open. And that's constantly being updated. They've been doing that for 20 years now. So there's a lot of information available, freely available. And in the U.S., you can access a library. So for free. So I think that's that's the cool thing. The thing that's important to me is low cost, right? All of my tools are open source. I make everything freely available because that's how I learned. I didn't have a lot to purchase. I had, when I was younger, I had a computer, right? And that's all I needed. And I was fortunate to have a computer, right? I'm very fortunate for that. So I think if you have access to a computer just by going to a library, that's actually what I did before I had a computer. I would go to the library. Um, that's really all you need to start learning. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, threat intelligence and sort of get your take on how organizations are using that and the part that you think it plays uh, when it comes to defenses. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, I think it's super interesting just because you can really, uh, from threat intelligence, you can learn how <laughs> how your organization is being exploited. I think that's probably the most interesting thing to me. What I've learned is that most organizations have already been hacked, right? Something has already been exploited. Um, and the challenge is really understanding. And probably one question I've had most of my life is, how many things have really been broken into? Like if you take 
take you, you, you take an organization or you just take some set of machines and systems, and maybe it's 100 computers, what percentage of those have actually been attacked uh, successfully? I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone knows uh, because I know when I was younger and I was attacking things, I would be able to get into something and no one knew. And no one ever found out in many cases. So how, how has that continued? And if that has happened for so many years, where else? How People can get further and further into a network, especially once you're on a single system in a network. Uh, you can then, it's much easier to escalate privilege within that network. You're already within a trust boundary. So being able to do more and more and more. I mean, how many people are able to actually write code and inject backdoors into software we all use, right? We have the, there's a backdoor that was inserted into the Linux kernel uh, many, many years ago. And it was caught very, very quickly uh, by an astute observer. And it was a, the, the, it was literally a single character that was missing that caused a equal equals zero to become an equal zero, which gave someone a user permission of root. But how many of those are actually out there that, uh, from these. So I think it's really interesting to see the threats that are actually occurring in the landscape and then being able to use that and say, identify, oh, wow, this could be happening to our organization because we're actually running the same type of software. We're running the same type of system. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's very important. It's interesting to me, too, that it seems as though as, as by necessity, um, more and more software is being written with building blocks, you know, with Legos. You're, you're taking open source components or you're buying components and the writing uh, from scratch, it's really not practical and why do that when you have these components that are available? Um, but you're a real advocate of open source. What are the benefits that you see uh, people being able to enjoy through the use and availability and sharing of open source software? Uh, I mean, the first, I mean, as, as you said, is really, it just doesn't make, it doesn't necessarily make economic sense to spend all your resources building something that has already been built. If you can do it better, uh, then it might make sense, or perhaps you can spend that same time um, contributing to an existing project in order to improve that. Uh, I think one of the issues with building something, and, and not to say that there's anything wrong with maybe closed source proprietary tools. Uh, however, you get the benefit. What I found over time is that a proprietary tool and open source tool will both come out, let's say, around the same time, and they both work very well. However, the proprietary tool is harder to reverse engineer. So it's not impossible. Of course, we can reverse engineer anything, but it's harder. So it takes longer. So both of these tools are moving forward, gaining more users, gaining more traction. And the open source one is easy to inspect, easy to investigate. And then people are finding issues out of it. So those issues get reported because open source, and then those issues get resolved. Some issues don't get reported, but that happens. Then later on, these, these tools are both growing and growing and growing. The open source one has had the advantage of people inspecting and poking and prodding and then finding vulnerabilities and then reporting it and fixing it. However, the cl closed source one has not. And then at some point in the future, there is a vulnerability found. It just took a lot longer because you had to reverse engineer the binaries. And when it is found, well, now you have a much wider user base than you did. This happened with, for example, with the, the MyFair key cards, which are, are used actually everywhere. Every hotel you go to, you're using a MyFair key card. And those work, uh, those are also used in all sorts of public transport in the US and Europe. Um, the Oyster card, just ma massive, massive, massive. And that was a closed source, you know, closed crypto. Uh, that was ultimately broken many, many, many years later because it was all in hardware. It was very difficult to understand what was happening. So it took many years for people to actually reverse engineer and understand what was going on. Once it did, 
it affect it was drastic uh, because it affected like billions of cars around right. the world. So widespread. So widespread yeah. versus um, the open ones, which simply didn't have or only had the issues, but earlier on and had those resolved sooner yeah. with with smaller user bases. Um, that, that's I think one of the benefits, at least on a security perspective. Right, there are pros and cons to to both. At least when you're talking about tools to build other tools or systems on. Well, I, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time for us today. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm glad you're on our side, that you're, <laughs> you're, you're, using, that, uh, you're using your skills and intellect and insights uh, to try to help make things better. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Our thanks to Sammy Kamkar for joining us. We sat down at Recorded Futures 2019 Our Fun Predict Conference in Washington, D.C., don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.